This episode is brought to you by IVP. In his award-winning book, Reading While Black, Esau Macaulay calls the church to read scripture through the lens of the black church tradition. By sharing his own deeply personal narratives and offering his expertise as a biblical scholar, Macaulay enlightens Christians of all backgrounds about the black experience and helps them to better understand their own. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive Reading While Black for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's I-V-P-O-D-2-5, at ivpress.com. This is IVP. It is not on me. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, that God is working in ways that I cannot see and cannot understand, but he has called me to do my part. I think it's really helpful to think about the idea of like an orchestra. Some people just play the violin. It doesn't sound the same if it's just this one person or if I'm a violinist and I'm trying to be a cellist. Play your instrument, what God called you to do. And so if that is to be the person that goes to every school board meeting and is always like, hey, what about the kids in Title I schools? Girl, you're playing your instrument. Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. I'm your host, Caitlin Chess. Today, I'm talking to my friend, Katherine Freeman, about the relationship between politics and theology what she's learned in her years of working both with elected officials and in local churches, and the witness of the Black church in American political life. Catherine offers us both practical suggestions and a theological vision for faithful Christian witness in public. Catherine Freeman is a PhD student at Baylor University, studying virtue, ecclesiology, diversity, and democracy. She previously worked as the Director of Public Policy for the Baptist General Convention of Texas and for several public policy nonprofits on issues affecting low-income families, such as juvenile justice reform, maternal health, and the school-to-prison pipeline. Catherine has an MDiv from Truett Seminary, a JD from the University of Texas Law School, and a BA from Texas A&M University. I know you'll enjoy learning from Catherine's vast experience and education. She's done her homework. She also has a heart for equipping churches and Christians to faithful discipleship. I'm really excited about this, and I really want to start out asking you a little bit about your background because it's so interesting to me. And before we get into some of the other topics, I think it would be helpful for people to hear about where you're coming from because you have done a lot of things. <laughs> you have a lot of education yeah. and have yeah. done a lot of work. I do. Um, so tell us just a little bit about your story when it comes to faith and politics and kind of your educational background, but also kind of where you've come to the place you are now with your sense of vocation. Yeah. So I guess I would say it started maybe in college, um, maybe a little bit earlier than that. My mom was like, um, and my grandfather were like vociferous, like news watchers and like just always like very interested in politics. So it kind of like grew up around that conversation. But I think for me, where, where my like sense of vocation really, um, originates from is, um, in college, I mentored, um, was part of through my church, uh, a ministry that worked with, kids in the local high school, um, Brian ISD, which if you're familiar with like where Texas A&M is, 
like College Station is a little bit more affluent and Brian um, is a little bit more working class. And so um, we would pick up students at our church and like bring them back for like youth group. And we would have um, like a homework probably hour and then we would do like games and fun stuff with them. And just but like through that work of like just seeing like these two cities are like right next to each other and the like depth of inequity um in terms of what resources were available like particularly I mentored a girl um whose name was Aisha and I tell her story a lot um because it was just really eye-opening for me you know I think a lot of the things that Christians are told about poverty it's like people need to work or this is because people don't have fathers or and that was not the case with her family like her, her parents were married like extremely hardworking, had been married since, like, I think they were high school sweethearts, and had this desire to go to college. Like, she really wanted to be the first person in her family to go to college. And so my roommate and I were like, okay, we'll tutor you in the SAT, like, you know, um, to get ready to do that. Like, her school didn't have any offer, and her parents, you know, they had no idea. And so we sit down on the first day, and I thought, like, we're going to start with something easy, because this is her first time. I, like, want to build her confidence. At that time, I know the SAT has changed, so I'm dating myself a little <laughs> bit. But it, you had those, like, um, word analogies. So, like, it was that portion mm. where you had, like, one word and then what is an analogous word. So, like, studying vocabulary was very helpful for that section. And so I, we started out with, like, the vocab flashcards. And I show her the first word. And she's just giving me a total blank stare. And then I, like, use it in a sentence. And she's still not really sure. And at this point, my heart drops because she's so smart. She's an A student. Like, she cares a lot about school. She always did her homework. And, you know, she was, like, a senior. And I was like, how is it possible? Like, I feel like like this is a word that maybe I learned in, like, seventh or eighth grade. And she just – and I felt so bad because it was having the opposite effect of, like, um, instead of building her confidence, she was, like, starting to feel really bad. And the word was denial. And I just – it opened my whole world to this idea that like just because of someone's zip code, we accept like we all accept, you know, um, as a taxpayer, as someone who lived and voted in Brian, that it was OK, this sort of educational inequity. And so that really kind of started my on my journey around policy and how, yeah, how schools are funded. And I went to law school and worked for a state senator to do education policy. God had other plans. I ended up doing communications. But post that working in politics, I have done more like policy work, both in my two previous jobs with a nonprofit policy organization and then also working with Texas Baptist. And I think my sense of calling is just motivated out of this deep sense of like justice. And I know that there are like different ways of going about that. And I just felt for me, like there's so many, are so many, were so many Aishas in the world. And, you know, how is, what's the best route to go about them. And, and, you know, I have experience, you know, I always say like advocacy and like community work. So like tutoring her was a way of like doing advocacy. But I think for me, just feeling like on a systemic level, like we can, I can do this person by person, which, you know, we all have our limits or I can get to the, like, or be the type of person that like gets to like the root of the issue. And I think I just have always felt like a deep sense of calling to like go upstream and deal um, upstream with the issues. And I feel like that's like a through thread of even where I am now vocationally. Yeah. What prompted 
seminary <laughs> for you, because I think some people, I mostly encounter people who go the opposite direction. They go to seminary because they want to do ministry. They get confronted at some point with some systemic issues and they either go to law school after that, or they end up working for a nonprofit after that. Um, but I don't meet a lot of people that take the direction that you took. So what kind of prompted that decision? So part of it is I laugh because, you know, and I like tell the story because God just, I have a sense of humor about it now. <laughs> and I feel like it's part of my story and God can use anything, mm -hmm. any motivation. So I went to law school, honestly, because I did not want to work and my parents would not pay for me to get a master's degree in English. And I'm not a math person, so I didn't want to do business <laughs> school. And I honestly, at the time, just didn't think seminary was an option. I grew up in a church where women were not pastors and didn't have like lead ministry roles that's changed a little bit since I grew up but it was so it honestly just never occurred to me but I was I I loved politics I loved public policy um and so that's why I chose law school and then I think in my turn I never thought about the kind of conjunction of being able to in a single job do you know my two deepest like my love of Jesus and uh, love of neighbor and also combine that with my love of like justice and public policy um and I worked for Texas Baptist and, you know, I'm like, I love to read and like was reading a lot of books. And I just kind of was like, well, I want to know for myself, like, I want to be able to, for myself, have the skills and the tools to like read and kind of come to my own conclusions was one thing. But my other thing was like, I want to see what kind of training most pastors get my like sort of practical experience. I want to be in the space where the, most pastors are trained to understand how ministry leaders are, are trained to kind of have these conversations. And the answer was they are not. <laughs> um, which just kind of like clarified yeah. a lot of things for me. Um, but then I think also too, just for myself, like understanding like church history and like what is, you know, the historical through line of the church in terms of how they've engaged with governments and, you know, and so, and then thinking theologically about what that might look like. And then the hope of sort of, um, changing that at some point in the future where there could be more conversations around discipleship and spiritual formation that involve public life and politics and what it means to be sort of outside the walls of the church. Yeah, I was curious even hearing you say that just now when you said, you know, I was curious how pastors were trained. I was like, not at all. <laughs> Definitely yeah. not. Um, but I am curious, like when you were doing the work you were doing before. Um, and when I first met you, it was in the context of Texas Baptist. So you were yeah. working with churches, um, working with people in churches, thinking about policy and advocacy. Were there things that when you went to seminary sort of surprised you theologically or that confirmed what you'd been doing? Because I imagine in the work you were doing, you were working out a theology of politics just kind of on yeah. the ground. Were there things that either you learned and thought, oh, yeah, I kind of figured that out along the way. I hadn't learned it in this formal sense, but it's what I had figured out as I was working. Or were there things that kind of challenged what you had been doing or even things that you heard being taught that you were like, oh, maybe that's part of the reason I'm encountering these pastors that aren't well-trained for this is actually this idea that I think might be wrong. Yeah, I think in terms of like challenging me, um, I think because I am African-American, come out of the African-American church tradition. The idea that it's possible to be political um, without ever kind of engaging elected officials was like very challenging to me, yeah. um, particularly in the early church. You know, we think about like um, Christians who were persecuted under like 
you know, the Roman Empire and, and subsequent generations, you think about the Anabaptists. Um, so that was a challenging to me. And I feel like in my experience where I went to seminary, those sort of stories, it did challenge me to think more broadly about the issue of politics and political theology. But it also confirmed to me that in terms of like the weighting of those stories, it felt like the sort of predominant vision that was espoused was this sort of like, well, just love your neighbor and you don't have to kind of go to this like next level in terms of loving your neighbor. So then it made sense to me why so many pastors either don't talk about politics or are very like cagey about it. This idea that like, you know, love your neighbor encompasses all the things you need to know. And then that like, and it does encompass a lot, but in terms of like practical, and if you preach sermons about that, that it is automatically translatable into how people engage in politics and their neighbors. To me, that was a little bit like naive, but it was good for me to be challenged in that way because it opened my, my own thinking about, yeah, like, what does it mean to be an advocate? What does it mean to be involved in politics? So Yeah, no, that matches my experience too. And even my first semester of seminary was during the 2016 election. And it did feel like a lot of my peers were reckoning with the fact that they hadn't been given any resources for responding to this because they saw that it couldn't be separated. Like you said, they were preaching, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And then they were watching their congregations act in political ways in their communities that did not yeah. seem consonant with loving their neighbor. So they went, okay, I have I have to find some other way to articulate this, but I don't know what it is. And now years since then, I really care with you about us having more robust theology in our churches about what our public life looks like. And the pushback I often get from people is this really deeply ingrained sense in predominantly white churches that we should keep politics out of the pulpit. And when they say pulpit, they don't even just mean actually pulpit. They mean like in the the whole walls of the church, <laughs> like nothing political should kind of be in the walls of the church, even though there are a lot of unspoken political assumptions and biases that we can just kind of harbor without them being confronted. When you think about the work that you've done with churches and with people in churches, how would you describe a healthy involvement for the church in public life? Because on one hand, I think some people have just this this bad theology that doesn't acknowledge the fact that we need to really work out what our public life looks like. On the other hand, I think you have some, especially kind of young evangelical folks who are thinking, well, the model I was given for political engagement is really coercive and unhealthy and power hungry. And so then they just kind of go, I think we just shouldn't have anything to do with it at all. How would you describe both kind of practically and theologically what it would look like for people in their churches to be engaged politically? Yeah, um, oh, I have, I'm going to try to like make this succinct. I have such a long answer to this. <laughs> go, for, go for all you want to say, Catherine. <laughs> I would say the first thing is that we are embodied human beings. And part of being a Christian is living in public. Like none of us live in the four, the church walls. And so if the only place you understand the fruits of the spirit is within the walls of the four church, and uh, um, you've not you're not dealing with the totality of what it means to be a person, to be an American, to live in this world and beyond sort of that sort of very sheltered, confined space is what I would say to people that say, we don't want to engage this. And the thing is, I think you're, you don't want to engage this, but people are engaged and they are being formed because again, this is part of what it means to be a human being. It's part of what it means to live in your neighborhood, in your state, in this country. And so if you're not forming them or 
um, even like influencing their formation, other things are going to step into that vacuum. And I think what we have discovered is that maybe the kinds of formation that are happening, we don't necessarily agree with, um, or we don't think reflect, you know, the church or our theological commitments. And part of that is because we've abdicated our authority in that space. And I would say to someone who feels like, you know, they just want to give it all up. I mean, you know, I said I'm from the Black church tradition. I just, that's just like not consistent with what I have seen. There are, I want to be clear that there the Black church t- tradition is varied. So there are some churches that were not very political. Um, but when you think about things like the civil rights movement or um, even beyond that, just like education, like the fight for equality in education. I mean, the family, they weren't named in the Brown versus Board suit, but their their children were part of that original suit. He was like a deacon and she was like a Sunday school teacher. And I think of women like, you know, September Clark that both really cared about adult literacy and so ran from her church like literacy education for adults and for children, but also with the goal that like you be able to pass the literacy test so you can vote. I think people have this very limited imagination of what it looks like to be political. It's like, I have to vote. But I think one, it's so much bigger than that. And like, if that's the only, I mean, you should as an American citizen and as a participant in democracy, but if that's the only thing you're doing and you're only talking about politics, you know, in November, October of an election year, I would also argue that that's like not enough. And like, you should not do that. Like the the conversation should be ongoing about, you know, what does it mean to live as a Christian? And I feel like a lot of churches maybe do well, like small, like from missions, you know, they have, you know, GED classes or job training and, you know, those things are great. Like you absolutely should, should do those things. But then when you think about, I'll use like immigration as um, an example because I do a lot of immigration advocacy work. What we have found is that churches that are very committed to their mission to refugees or immigrants, you reach a point in a person's story where being a neighbor involves more than just let me take you to the grocery store or help you enroll your kids in school. There just comes a point when you're in relationship with someone, you start to see, yeah, that this is not just a like, oh, I can just go, you know to this one office and help you with this one thing. And then it's resolved um, that things do involve other, you, you have to, you know, whether it's, you know, you have a dreamer in your youth group, right? Like your church can fundraise to pay for them to, to get DACA status, which is great. And you should do that. But at some point it's like, this is a bigger issue that there are, you know, thousands of kids who love Jesus that are caught up in, just a really messed up system. And so part of what it might mean to be a good neighbor is, yes, pay for, you know, help pay for a lawyer or, you know, help them apply for college. But also, hey, I'm writing my congressman to say, to tell this story and say, I really care about this issue. But I would say, you know, don't stop at that. Um, There's I mean, there's so many different things you can do. But I would say for me, like in terms of the healthiest ways and models that I've seen, I think it starts with people. Um, I had a, a conversation many, many years ago with Karen Swallow Pryor, who I know you love, yeah. about, well, why can't people just see like watching on the news? <laughs> like that these things are happening and why does yeah. it require a relationship? Because it seems like that takes a long time. Like you have to be willing to 
risk things. You have to have some courage to put yourself in situations that you wouldn't normally be in. And that just seems like a lot of factors. And then she reminded me that Jesus was incarnational, that part of what we see in his model and his choosing to come and become human is he has a different level. Like he understands because he was with us. And so that the model that we have in incarnational really is a relationship-based model. And so I often say, I think it's best to start with missions or the people that you know in your church that you're in relationship with. Um, and don't and don't avoid like hard and messy conversations. And I really think the healthiest models I've seen have been built from that. Because I feel like it's hard for a lot of people, my experience is it's hard for a lot of people to just you know, call up a congressman and be like, I support this, you know, but if you're telling a story of someone you live in a relationship yeah. with, in some ways, it's much easier because you're not like, I'm not an expert. I don't know, but I want to tell you this story and how it's impacted me and that there's power in that. And honestly, now I think for Christians, sort of for the long-term engagement and a hope-filled sort of political practice, relationship keeps you going um, yeah. because so often I've seen it can become just like an ex intellectual exercise and it's draining because you don't see any progress. Um, you're like, I'm wasting my time. But when you're tethered to someone, you have like, I don't know, for me, like an additional, like, this isn't about me, you know, and I'm not about politics and I'm not about the process. I'm about my friend, Aisha. I'm about my friend. Um, and that to me, it's just a better it just, I feel like sustains you for much, much longer than just like an intellectual, like I'm opposed to this and I'm just going to, um, you'll keep in it longer. I feel like. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. I, um, it relates really well to, I wanted to ask you, I heard an interview that you did recently or maybe not recently, who knows? It could have been a long time ago, <laughs> um, where you were talking about, kind of the the circle that Jesus had in terms of of his yeah. ability to influence was relatively small and like had to walk places and it was such a helpful picture for me I'd love to hear you talk about that picture of Jesus um not only the like kind of the incarnational value but then what that means for what's valuable in our own work because I think people get overwhelmed by the structural issues but also feel like the only way they can make a difference is to fix something at a really big level or on a really big scale. Okay. Yeah. I think so. A lot of what affects people's everyday life happens. And you think about things around schools, for example, like the school board does have a lot of power. Like they are allocating the resources that have been given to them. And so you have a part to play in those things in, in that allocation, even if you don't have children in, in public schools. Um, and so I would say, yeah, I mean, I think oftentimes we forget sort of our own limits, like you're one person. And a great thing to do, I always encourage is to meet other people who have the similar like calling or um as you because you can keep each other going so it's not like your responsibility like you yourself are not jesus christ the savior of the world um <laughs> you know you're a disciple and what can you do as a disciple as someone yeah and connected to your you know i think about even just like paul like he went to ephesus and he spoke so then the letter we have as ephesians is really out of this relational experience he has with the church there. And so I think the idea that like I have to do everything is 
I mean, you're living kind of a little bit beyond what it means to actually be a person and a creative being. So I think that's really helpful to think about. And I also think, so I, when I worked for Texas Baptist, my boss, we had to go into this meeting and I was just really nervous because it was going to be a hard issue. And um, I was just expecting a really hostile conversation. And he kind of was like, let's, let's pray before we go in. And we did. And then we went into the office and the conversation was difficult. But in the end, he asked the the staffer that we were meeting with, like, you know, just how are you? Um, you know, can we pray for you? And him and his wife had just had a baby, so he wasn't sleeping very well. And he was just very stressed with just like his life outside of this office. And so uh, my boss asked if he could pray for him. And I was just like, wait, what? No, <laughs> like this. It's like one thing to like pray outside of the office, but like, whoa, okay. Um, And he was like, yeah, I would love that. And we did. And he maybe like a couple hours later called back and, and told me, you know, I've talked to the senator and we're going to go with what you guys are saying on this issue. And I never forget that experience because the I it is not on me, right? Like to remind myself always that this is a work of the Holy Spirit, that God is working in ways that I cannot see and cannot understand, but he has called me to do my part. I think it's really helpful to think about the idea of like an orchestra. Some people just play the violin, right? And it doesn't sort of like Mozart or Bach don't sound... You know, if it's just this, it doesn't sound the same if it's just this one person or if I'm a violinist and I'm trying to be a cellist, right? Like play your instrument, what God called you to do. And so if that is to be the person that goes to every school board meeting and it is always like, hey, what about the kids in Title I schools? And these are the, you know, they don't have the same resources. They don't have the same teachers. I feel like we need to do a tutoring program. Girl, you're playing your instrument and like you're doing what God called you to do. And like, don't feel bad that you don't also march in parades or like, you know, and it's just like, really like, I, for me, as I have gotten older and have gone deeper in this work, I just, prayer is like so crucial. It is like the first step. One, God, open my eyes. And where have you called, like, where are you calling me? What is my part? And I just feel like if more Christians maybe started with that, rather than this, like, I'm exactly like Jesus Christ, so I can save the world. So... <laughs> We may say that the Bible is God's word, but do we truly believe that it is trustworthy? Historian Susan Lim understands that we may not fully understand the context that formed what we now call the Bible. This can lead to our being suspicious instead of fully trusting in this divinely inspired text. In her book, Light of the Word, Lim recounts how the Bible was assembled and shows through her compelling historical study the trustworthiness of Scripture. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on Light of the Word at ivypress.com. I so appreciate that, partially because I do think people feel the need to just know a lot and do a lot about everything, and that feels really overwhelming. And also because, you know, we're talking a lot this season about spiritual preparation for an election season. We're trying to move a little bit internally and ask, like, how do we be the kind of people who can do good work without losing our souls, without being warped by the larger you know, political culture that we're in? And I want to get to that in a minute. But I also want to ask you particularly, if someone is listening to you and thinking, OK, yeah, I think I have figured out my instrument. Like, I think this is the thing I'm supposed to really focus on. How would you counsel them to prepare 
really practically to engage with that. Not we, we'll, we'll talk about the spiritual part in a second, but if you're someone who like really cares about the quality of public schools, for example, in your community, but you don't know a lot about it. And you want to learn about it and advocate for it in a Christian way, how would you counsel someone both kind of educating themselves? Like, how would you counsel them to figure out the best kind of way to to seek justice in their community? And then also, how would you counsel them to figure out how to be involved? Because I think some people hear this and go, like, I don't know what to do. I would really like to be involved. But the model I've been given is social media, which has its role. But, like, I don't know what to do beyond that. Yeah. Um, I always say start with listening. And so some really great places to start with your listening is like local PTAs, um, going to the school board meeting. I sort of love this model um, of Be the Bridge where for three months you're just like absorbing. Mm-hmm. You can't speak <laughs> for three months. And I think that's so great because I think it's just in our nature that we want to jump in and do something. Um, but I also had another mentor of like resist that urge and sort of spend time in getting really quiet and like listening. And so if it's education, um, you can, there's some like really great um, books and that you can, you can read. I would say trying to find other people, like if you have friends or family or there are women in your church or men in your church who are teachers or principals saying, Hey, can I take you to a coffee? And like, I'm just interested in learning more about this. I'm interested in learning more about public education. I mean, most of us go to church with a ton Mm -hmm. of teachers and which is always like so funny when people are like god has left public schools and it's like you don't know Uh how many christians have dedicated their life to this system but asking to talk to them and and i think also too sometimes people get overwhelmed because maybe they do join a group you know maybe they get more involved in their pta and the group is advocating for this one thing and it seems like all the people that you are listening to or maybe the people in your church are like who have experience, who you know are knowledgeable or like, no, we don't want that thing. We want this other thing. Like, don't be frightened by that because there are many ways to eat an apple and you don't have to just kind of go with what you're told. I think part of the listening is you're learning discernment and like what makes the most sense, you know, and there's really great organizations. Like a lot of organizations also have, like you can read about things. So like I would say like communities and schools and the Boys and Girls Club also have really great sort of like resources about the work that they're doing and what they're seeing and observing in public schools. The Expectations Project is a Christian sort of organization working in um, public policy. There are more resources than I think most people most people think. Um, And so I would say just maybe pick one area and start with one thing. And maybe you just listen to their podcast. Like the New York Times did a really great podcast on um, public school parents in New York. And that is a tool of learning. So maybe, you know, while you're running, you just kind of listen through that and you find, I think there was like a This American Life series about school segregation and how that harms students. And so, you know, like, don't be afraid to like, expand sort of the things that podcasts can also be a really great learning resource. And I also think for school board is another because people run for that. It's an elected office reaching out to a school board member and being like, hey, I live in your area. I could I come to the office? I'm just interested in learning more about the issues or like looking at their websites of like, what are their goals for the schools in this area? And, you know, asking to meet with them and talk to them because, again, the way the system works is they wouldn't be in office without people voting for them. And I think for election season, you can read um, candidates' websites. The League of Women Voters usually has a voter guide in most states 
and all the way down the ballot that are really helpful. I read newspaper. I mean, I know reading newspapers is like out of style, but I read a lot my yeah, local news yes. to know what's going on in my community. I like they usually do like endorsements because they talk to the candidates. And now it's really great. They've started a lot of newspapers have started posting those interviews online. Um, so going to watch those. And yeah, I think going to a town hall, like if your congressman or school board member is having like a coffee and something that's really great way to meet them rotary clubs i mean not cool for our generation (laughs) but you would be surprised how many politicians go through rotary clubs and go to those breakfasts and like talk that's their way of talking to the community the note they go to the neighborhood associations or rotary clubs or lions clubs or other civic um institutions so that's also a really great way to like listen and find out more about what's going on in your community so those are probably some starter ideas yeah that's really helpful i mean i do think what part of what i hear you saying too is once you've kind of figured out this is my thing that i'm focusing on And once you've kind of dealt with the fact that actually maybe locally there's more I can contribute or impact than big national stuff, it does seem less overwhelming then to just kind of go, okay, what I care about is education or what I care about is housing and I care about it in this place with these people. And actually it doesn't take a lot of Googling to like find some meetings that are happening or people that are organizing about it or things that I can read. That feels more manageable. You've kind of mentioned some of this already, but I do think... It would be interesting to just hear you talk about your experience in the church and how you have seen especially, you know, predominantly white churches kind of differ in their political engagement than many black churches in American history. I'm partially asking this because I do think there are a lot of, as I said earlier, young Christians who have grown up in white evangelical churches and think this is the model of political engagement. I don't like that. So then there's just kind of nothing they feel left with. What do you think they should learn from the history of the Black church in America, especially when it comes to political engagement? Are there particular critiques that would help them kind of move into a healthier way or would kind of maybe a little bit critique their own apathy in the face of the difficulty that they have seen in the past? Are there things that they need to learn, you think? Yeah, there's such a rich tradition. I'm like sort of obsessed with that era of American history. So I've read a lot of biographies, but I would say the big thing you I would encourage people to take away from that experience is for pastors or leaders is part of what it means to care for people is to care for the whole person, the whole circumstance. And that's, you know, part of what you see from like Fred Shuttlesworth and even with Martin Luther King's father, I'm reading a biography of his father right now. It was really interesting. His church in Atlanta, there was like a strike in the early 1920s or something, 30s in Atlanta of women who were like washerwomen. And a lot of the women were in his church and felt like, hey, you need to support us because we're being exploited, like we're not being paid what our work is worth. And they they had to convince and control him. But eventually he did because he's like, yeah, these part of what it means to be a pastor and to shepherd these, these people is like, I should care about their quality of life and I should care if they're being exploited um, when they walk out of the church doors Um on Sunday. And I would say, you know, there's just like a measure of humility of like, okay, maybe I haven't learned this or I don't like the model. The first step is saying, I don't like what I have learned. And then thinking about, okay, well, where can I go or who can I turn to, to learn from? Um, And I think, you know, 
there's so many people, I think, in sort of the Black church tradition. I think about, yeah, like Fred Shuttlesworth or like Fannie Lou Hamer or, you know, like Nanny Helen Burroughs. But I also think, you know, the way in which we tell the Christian story is very exclusionary. So like Jimmy Carter is someone who is a white evangelical who is an excellent model of what it looks like to love Jesus and be involved in public policy. Um, I think people like to cut him Mm -hmm. out because he was a Democrat. Um, But, you know, and I think about, I can never remember his name, but he he helped start Habitat for Humanity. Is it Clarence Jordan? That might be another person. Mm -hmm. But even within our tradition, um, you know, you get to pick the stream, right? And so maybe you've come out of a more a stream that you don't feel like you want to be a part of that anymore. But there are people, faithful Christians throughout time who have done that. And there's just so much we can we can learn from them. I think, you know, because of their sacrifices, I mean, we're not facing, you know, the reality of, I think of even someone like um, Viola Lozo, who was a, a white woman, who was involved with the March for Voting Rights from Selma to Montgomery. And on the way back, she was driving protesters back. And she was killed and i just think about someone you know what does that like that sacrifice like most of us now in terms of when we're getting involved in political you know advocacy or public policy we're not facing life and death situations like it's not likely (laughs) that someone is going to shoot you and so i just think also too just like the courage of what it means to put yourself one, in the position of a listener, a humble listener, um, and then to follow. I think that's also a really hard thing, right? Like, you feel like, okay, I've read all these books. I know everything there is to know about Martin Luther King. <laughs> like, I should be the leader of this movement. Mm-hmm. But there, like, there is a place for being a really good follower. And, like, that, that is important. So much of what Dr. King was able to do was because of people who are in the trenches, like, every day showing up to their local courthouse to register to vote or protest inequality. And, and you know, maybe we don't know their names. Their names are lost to history, but God knows their names. Um, and we're all beneficiaries of their their sacrifice. And so I think part of it is just, you know, being okay not being the person out front or if, like, no one ever knows that you served in this way or did this thing. You know, God is still faithful and yeah. it's about glorifying him. So sometimes people want to discard part of the legacy they've inherited, maybe just the political party that they were associated with. But the model of like, it's me that has to be the person that like changes the world and gets all the rewards for it. You can keep that part and not realize like you've kept that part. I've even noticed the the city that I live in now, Durham, North Carolina, has this really rich history of Black churches' political engagement. And I've noticed that a lot of white students will come to Duke, um, sometimes the Divinity School, sometimes to some other, you know, uh, school at Duke, and they'll want to get really involved in the political life of Durham. And then they'll get told, okay, show up to this meeting that meets at this Black church. And they, like, don't know how to deal with the fact that, like, this came before you. It has all this history. And you really are supposed to just, like, sit and listen and hear what your marching orders are. That's really difficult (laughs) for people who feel like, oh, I have a political science degree. I have all this knowledge. Like, but it does feel like a spiritual discipline to learn how to do that. And that really, that's one of the big things I want to ask you today is how do people approach 2024 
and maintain healthy relationships with their family and their communities, find a way to advocate for what they believe in without kind of completely disrupting their churches, but maybe disrupting them in a in a positive way without, you know, kind of disrupting them in a way that brings greater faithfulness and justice, not in a way that just makes them feel like the prophet flipping tables. How would you counsel people to prepare themselves emotionally, relationally, spiritually for that season, for that difficult work, maybe? Maybe they really are listening to you and saying, okay, I want to be involved in the school board. I want to listen. I want to learn. What does it look like for me to think about myself as a whole person where my spiritual life, my emotional life, my relational life will impact my ability to do that work? How can I prepare well for that? I've gotten pushback on this, but I'm just going to speak from my experience. You really have to come from a place of love, a deep love of people and a recognition that this person, despite our disagreements, is created in the image of God. And if I am not in physical danger or it, you know, maybe the best, sometimes the best way to love people is from afar. So like, absolutely sacrifice. But I think like my experience in my own family is we're kind of like a mixed political family. And I have some relatives that are extremely conservative and totally disagree about some political things. And one thing that always helps me when I enter in those conversations is to remember like my aunt in particular makes a wonderful breakfast and she's so hospitable. And like I stayed with her one summer. She made me breakfast and lunch every day to like take on my way to class. And like that's a part of who she is too, even if we don't agree. And so I always think keeping that for me in the forefront of like, again, I think I said at the beginning that like politics is a part of what it means to be, um, you know, a neighbor to live in this country, to live in your neighborhood, but it's not the whole of it. I think part of what has happened is politics has become a religion and so much so that instead of being like, oh, you're wrong on this and I disagree, it's like you're an evil person and you want me to die. Well, that makes it hard to have any sort of conversation, any kind of civic engagement when I can't even be in the room with someone who doesn't agree with me politically. And I think that sort of like totalizing. I think there's two, you know, maybe we're dealing with two opposite extremes where we're totalizing politics and making that everything about someone and then just kind of ignoring it and not dealing with it enough. And maybe just like, how are we going to avoid those extremes? I think, you know, making who someone is politically all of who they are makes it hard to have political conversations. It makes it hard to lead. It makes it hard to have a conversation to like change people's minds. If I hate you and think you're evil, like, then a part of you, part of me is like, you're not even worth persuading because I think you're an idiot. Like those sorts of attitudes, yeah. like you're not going to get very far. Um, and so I think this sort of like for Christians, particularly, I, you know, one of the things I lament is so much Christians of Christians who do get involved in politics looks exactly like people who've never set foot in our church. Like they will lie, they'll cheat, they'll call people names. And it's like, I don't know. I'm not a fan of that. And so I really think in our engagement, part of what it means to be a disciple is like looking like Jesus and loving people. And even for the prophets in Jeremiah, right? Like Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. He had a lot of horrible things to say, but it came out of one, a sense of calling from the Lord um, and that he was always praying and asking God, like, you know, what is it you want me to say? And for a deep 
love of people and just seeing how the evil was destroying them and their life um, and leading them down a path of destruction. And so it wasn't just like, hey, I want to get up here and be the leader and have everyone listen to me. It it was what, coming from a place of deep sorrow, a deep burdening by the Lord and for the people. And so I would say, you know, I think it's always important to like take a pause and like, what are my motivations? And this conversation in, in this relationship, I'm a big fan of, you know, I've talked about, you know, prayer and like, you know, just like for me, like it's more important than I think ever during political seasons to be in church and be in sort of a common worship and fellowship. I think in terms of spiritual disciplines, I think listening is is huge. I'm also a big fan of the fruits in the spirit of fruits of the spirit. It's like, am I being kind? Am I being gentle? Am I being joyful? Like Am I being a person of peace and like representing that and how I engage in advocacy and politics? Yeah, because to me, at the end of the day, like my witness as a Christian, as a follower of Christ is like the most important thing. Even if I never see on this time, this side of eternity, you know, equal funding in public schools, I want to be when I get to heaven, the person who sang my part or played my instrument in the orchestra, but in a way that brought glory to God. Like that is the most important thing. And like, just, I think not losing sight of like the ultimate, like this world is not our home. I think sometimes people use that as a tool to hide. Um, But I hope that it's coming across and that I, it's not a tool to not like not do anything and not get engaged, but it also is like your ultimate hope is Jesus Christ and his, and the fulfillment of in the, in the, in heaven at the end of times. Um, and that's when all things will be made perfect. Like part of living in a fallen world is things are not, are not perfect. And so that being sort of also to the motivator of like, this doesn't all depend on me. I don't have to resolve all of these yeah. issues because honestly, they won't be resolved um, until we new heaven and new earth. And so um, I think those are good things to like keep in the forefront of your mind as you're preparing for what is already looking to be a really difficult season um another practical thing this was the last thing i'll say as part of my i this is a spiritual practice it's so helpful for me is when people you're having those sort of one-on-one conversations and you feel like it's like listening or seeking to understand so i ask a lot of questions like i in dialoguing with people that maybe have different political beliefs or you know or maybe they um you know, or just saying what they maybe saw on TV or, you know, sharing an experience to be like, oh, okay, so what I hear you saying is this. Why do you feel this way? Or what is it about that incident that speaks to the larger sort of political thing? Like, why do you think that people would do X, Y, and Z? Because it kind of turns the temperature down. And then it's like a really good practice in terms of listening and being humble of like, oh, I can learn something mm-hmm. too. Like, I'm not just seeking to educate. I'm also seeking to be educated. Yeah. No, that's so good. I I just recently, and I don't think I've said this yet in any of the interviews that we've done, but um, I just recently was watching a conversation between two people that was getting kind of heated on a sort of political issue. It was about how our communities function well and how children should be cared for in our communities. And it was getting kind of heated. And the one person said to the other person who was kind of escalating the conversation, thank you so much for caring so deeply about the children in our community. And it totally lowered the temperature because it was so disarming. The other person was, it was genuine. It was not a tactic. It wasn't a strategy. It was like the other person could tell you really do 
care about this and you are thankful that I care about this. And that is so not the normal pattern of the conversations that we've been modeled that I don't even know how to respond (laughs) for a moment in a way that's good, in a way that's not like, oh, you didn't just catch them off guard. You really did change the conversation. It felt personal. It felt like there was some common ground. And even just the pause can like help the conversation not feel so tense of like, oh, Catherine just asked me a question. I wasn't prepared for that. I thought she would respond with like, you know, another take against me. Even that is like stopping us from escalating. That's so, so, so helpful. Thank you for giving us some some practical tools for that. Thank you so much, Catherine, for the work that you do and for, you know, giving us your wisdom today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. The Disruptors is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Myla Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Tolson, and I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast. Yeah.